And so right now, I'd like to tell you Dr. Patrick is away, but we have a treat for you. Someone is going to speak who is one of our ministers. She's a teacher, a grandmother, and she's a great inspiration to me. Please help me welcome Reverend Catherine McLeod. Good morning. So let's just breathe in, breathe in that promise of heaven that we truly know is with us, within us, within the person to our left and the right, that promise of heaven that is music, that is our prayers, that truly is centered in the heart of our being. And so I know that this morning unfolds with great ease and grace and that we open our hearts to a bigger idea of who and what we are. That the spirit that is in life, that the genius that is in each cell is recognized. And that this teaching, that there is one life, that life is spirit, the divine, known by many names, that is the source of my being. And so I breathe that in. I remember that truth. I allow myself to feel grateful, centered, at peace with my life in this world. Claim that with me as together we say, and so it is. Thank you, Brown. So it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning, and I would like to say that Reverend, Dr. Reverend Patrick is in Brazil, where it's nice and warm, and he's out of the snow, and he's probably meditating with a group of very enlightened ones at this moment. He is seeing John of God. And John of God has been a healer, a spiritual healer for the last 45 or 50 years. And so I went onto the internet and tried to kind of get a sense of the environment that Dr. Patrick might be in and a little sense of the man that he might be experiencing. And I'd have to say, there is a little part of me as I looked at that and thought, now who is the coordinator of the pastoral healing care team? <laughs> and who is going down to see the healer? <laughs> But he told me he's checking it out. He's checking it out. He didn't want to send, you know, he's in charge, and he didn't want to send anyone down there only to be disappointed. And so he's going to make sure it's worth my while. But that whole idea of healing instantaneously, that spirit has the ability to enter the cells and transform them instantaneously, and that there is truth in that message. It really is beyond human understanding. And if you're like me, do you have a little doubting Thomas in you that's yakking it up about things like that? So I know that thought creates. And I know that if I believe it's possible, my chances of creating it and experiencing it and having it as part of my reality are way better than if I've already said, prove it to me. Make me believe it. 
But there is a part of me in my life where I have said to Spirit, make me believe it. Give me a sign. Show me something. I just can't walk out in faith. But, you know, the scripture really says that the greatest faith are those that don't need a sign that actually already believe. But honestly, I've had lots of signs. I really have. I've had lots of signs that I couldn't deny. So even with that, a part of me still kind of wonders about this faith healing that spirits from the past, thousands of years in the past. We talk, they, he talks about King Solomon coming in to do the healing. He was an ancient healer that used all of the healing modalities of his time thousands of, thousands of years ago. Life is a mystery. We just don't know how it all works, do we? We would like to think that we're in control, and I think this teaching can kind of be used incorrectly when we say that you know thought creates and you can choose your experience and you can attract to you whatever you want. I mean, that's a very, that's a very little piece of the message that we're delivering. The first message is that it's all spirit and it is a mystery. And that life itself is a mystical experience, that we are spirit in human form, experiencing at this level our life. Einstein said, the intuitive mind is a, is a gift. It's a sacred gift. And the rational mind is the servant. So the intuitive mind, Ernest Holmes says, is spirit knowing itself. So spirit knowing itself as my intuition, as your intuition, as our collective intuition, is spirit knowing itself. And the servant is the rational mind. Is that what we see when we look out into this world of technology and of business and of how decisions are made? And isn't there just a little part of you, there certainly is of me, when I say, well, soul and spirit is number one reality of life, it's what's real, and the rest of it is just the servant of that reality. We are spiritual beings in human form. We are not supposed to be human form making stuff reality. That shouldn't be the center of our quest as we walk planet Earth. I have been doing lots of research on how is it that we can change this world to create a world that actually works for everyone with our thought. Can we be like John of God and just kind of channel whatever it's going to take to transform reality so that we actually have a planet, a world, a being that is spirit, spiritual, where it works for everyone, where we have enough for everyone, that we have a sense of prosperity and well-being everywhere, and that that spirit within us that wants all that guides all of our decisions, guides all of our decisions, that we all have that consciousness automatically. If it's not good for the next seven generations, we're not doing it. If it's ruining our water, we're not doing it. If it's churning up the north and displacing hundreds, thousands of people, we're not doing it. That there's a power for good in the universe, it's spirit, that's the master, and the rational mind is a servant, and the servant is going to get it together and figure out the how. The why is 
we're creating a world that works for everyone because we are spirit in human form. Come to create the consciousness of that everywhere, all the time. Now, you might be thinking as I say that, that this is hippy-dippy BS I'm talking. <laughs> but if you're saying that, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, a psychiatrist, who does research and study on the brain, would say, that's just your left brain talking. That the right brain and the left brain are kind of in conflict with each other, and they have been for the last 500 years, especially in the Western world. The left brain is mechanistic. It's a machine. It's not life-giving. It's not about life itself. It's about the creating stuff quickly, efficiently. The right brain is whole, the whole of being. We have been working so hard to create that we've kind of forgotten the big picture, but that's because the left brain, that's really all it can do. It does not have the big picture. It doesn't have it. It's not part of its physical physiology. It's not part of its makeup. It doesn't have it. We are using it as the master sometimes instead of the servant to spirit knowing itself. Dr. Ian McGilchrist uses this story as an example of it. It's a story by Nietzsche, the German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, from the 19th century. And he said that it's an example of what's happening in our personal life, in our brain, in our life, in our community, and in our world. So the story goes like this. There was a spiritual master who had a domain, a community, that was prosperous, happy, cooperative, and everything was going very well. He used wisdom and compassion and forbearance and discernment and conversation and collaboration to make decisions. His domain grew. It prospered. More and more and more people became part of it. And so he had to train supervisors, managers that Nietzsche says emissaries. He trained them in about his, his technique, his values, and his vision for his domain. And so he assigned them and trusted them and let go of them, and he did not micromanage them. He let them evolve, and his, those communities that they supervised evolved. But his very smartest emissary started to think of how he could really run his piece of the pie more efficiently, how they could actually skim a little extra money off the top and be much more efficient, and they could invest in other things. And he started to feel that his master, the spiritual master, really was not very wise. And he started to talk about him out there in the field and discredit and discount the inefficient ways that things had been, the inefficient things that they had done before. And pretty soon he did undermine the spiritual master completely. And the spiritual master was overthrown. And the head advisor, the emissary, became a tyrant. And the whole domain collapsed in disarray. Dr. McGilchrist wrote the book, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain. He chose his title based on that story of Nietzsche, and he said, that is what's happening to us. That is what's happening to our brains, 
That's what's happening to our Western world. That we are in conflict. The right brain should be the spiritual master. The left brain, the rational brain, the techie brain, the mechanical brain should be the servant if we are going to create a world that works, that's sustainable, that's enjoyable, that's beautiful, that's filled with art and music and dance and conversation and collaboration. That it is our right brain that sees the big picture and that our left brain honestly can't. It just doesn't have the wiring for it. It is made to help us move, help us read, help us talk. It has all of that circuitry that we absolutely must have to exist in this world, but it does not have the emotions and it does not have the big picture and it does not have empathy and it does not have the whole of reality, although the sad part is, he said, it thinks it does. So that if you have a stroke and it affects the right side of your brain and you only have the left side left that's working, that's functioning, you immediately think that all is well. And so when the doctor comes in, and Dr. McGilchrist said he goes into the room and asks the person to move their right side, the person says, okay, and he said, but nothing moved. Yes, he said, it did, I moved it. He said, well, it didn't move. He said, yes, it did. So he said he finds it, he picks up the arm and he holds it in front and says, move it. And the guy said, that isn't my arm. That's the guy in the other bed. And the left brain is arrogant. It does not want to be told that it's wrong. It actually believes that it has reality. And so if our, le- if our right sphere is cut off, which Dr. McGilchrist said is starting to happen, when you look at the MRIs, you can see that people can actually not be using that big mind on the right side efficiently and effectively and collaboratively. But really we need both, don't we? If one is moving our body and helping us read and be academically successful and leading us ahead in technology, of course we need our left brain. It's just that it should serve a higher purpose and not create its own purpose from its small mind thinking. Probably the best example that I can think of that describes the value or the experience of the right brain being in charge for a bit is Dr. Jill Bolte. She's the person, the neuroscientist, that has this wonderful YouTube clip on TED, and she's got the book, The Stroke of Insight. So she had, at the age of 37, a stroke to her left side, so that's a bleed. She had a bleed in the left side of her brain. She got up in the morning, she was experiencing a headache and not knowing what it was. She started just losing her capacity to move right, to think right. She knew she was in trouble and so she tried to phone her office to get help. And she realized that she had business cards but she couldn't actually read anything. That's a left brain function. She could see symbols and marks. She knew what the the telephone was for, but she couldn't actually read any of the numbers. So she goes into this with quite wonderful detail. She talks about the fact that she looked down at her hand and she could see that she no longer had um, an ending to her body, a boundary, that the, the little molecules were kind of combining with the molecules in the space around her. She felt and she saw that as this was happening, her spirit itself, 
her own little molecules, her energy was rising up out of her body. And she said it felt great. She felt huge, and her body looked very small. She matched a business card number that she recognized was the color of her business card. She sat it right by the numbers of the phone, and she com compared symbols to, to figure out the number because the left brain has our memory. She couldn't remember her number, and she couldn't read. The left brain has that, too. She went to talk. I guess she did it, and the person answered, and she tried to talk, but all she could say was, blah, blah. That language is over here in the left side. The person talked back. Same sound came back. Understanding and comprehension of languages on the left side as well. But she could feel her emotions, and she had the big picture of her task, of what she needed to do, and help came. When she was in the hospital, well, she said she thought for sure she was dying, and she surrendered her spirit, and she said it was uh, just, uh, she could just feel her spirit was so far outside her body and so um, in love with reality, with this new reality, this glimmering, wonderful reality. When she woke up in her hospital bed, she said that she felt like a giant whale in a harmonic ocean of life. And that if it hadn't been for the people who loved her, her mother especially, she's 37 years old when this happens, her mother came and stayed with her all the time, and she said her mother kind of loved her back into her body, that she would have just surrendered. It was so beautiful. But she said she knew immediately when people, nurses and doctors, or people came to visit her, that were in their left brain cognitive place of not wanting to feel too much. Doctors that wanted to come in and be just efficient, do the job and get out. People who wanted to just talk about the technical part of her brain and what exactly had happened and their heart wasn't open and they couldn't feel her. She could feel all that. And she said she, her stroke of insight was she knew she had the choice of living her life from that holistic, open sea harmonic beauty, her unity with all of life and with each person she felt, or her neuroscientist separate Jill Bolte individualized self, creating a living. That was her stroke of insight, she said. And so now she's talking, she's written the book, she's on YouTube, she does workshops, and she's trying to really help us understand who we are and the reality of life beyond the left brain function. The MRIs apparently are actually showing that more and more the left brain is picking up more things and is, is, is getting kind of all the energy and that we're thinking into our life from the left brain more than we are our right brain. And so when we're thinking into our life with our left brain, this teaching says, and this scientist says too, that we create that reality, that the world mirrors that back to us, and that we absolutely then feel that we can prove it. And he said, when you are sure about something and you set out to prove it, you can probably attract the facts and still call it science. And that, really, we need both of these hemispheres of our brain to work together and to collaborate. That that's the next task of civilization, is to put our, vis our values, 
our sense of spirit knowing itself as the master of our own personal lives. To be able to actually know when we're in the left side of our brain and be able to think about the right side and we can, he, he says you can actually move your attention back. Have you done this little test on the internet about right and left brain? It's the dancer, the ballerina. You can go online and tell if your right or left brain is dominant because the ballerina will turn clockwise, I think it is, if you're, right, if you're looking at it with your right brain and it'll go counterclockwise with your left. And you will not believe that it's true that anybody wouldn't see it the way you're seeing it. And they'll move it around a little bit so that you can practice going left and right, left and right, left and right, and have her turn this way and that way. The ideal is, of course, that we, our brains are balanced and that the right and left hemispheres cooperate with each other. That's important in our lives, in our political world, where debate seems to be what's taking place rather than dialogue. When you've already decided you're in a certain camp of reality, you're probably not going to be open to a bigger picture that would kind of connect all the dots and have you maybe shift your point of view a little bit. That's what Dr. Ian McGilchrist is talking about. He's saying that he's seeing much higher levels of mental illness in the Western world and the highest in the United States. And he's saying that he feels that we have just gone so, we trust so much in our science and technology that we are so happy being by ourselves, working in our own little silos, and that we think if we don't feel pain, that we'll do better, and that life will be better, and that we'll be happier, and that maybe we'll even create a world that works for everyone if our computers just know more. So did you notice in the paper this week when those two little girls fell in the water and that 27-year-old man from Fort Saskatchewan went in and pulled them out. Did you notice that? I thought about that last night as I was preparing this talk and thinking, well, how does that work? He certainly needed his left brain to, to be smart in the moment. He needed to move and to talk and to have a bit of a strategy. But I would think he would need his right brain so much to say, I'm one with these children. He's a father of really young children, and his wife and he were walking with their little kids over the bridge when they heard these girls cry or yelling, and they were both in the water. He took his dog down with her, him, and he fell into as trying to get the first girl, and you can imagine how cold and fast that current is and how much ice is kind of around it. It couldn't have been a task that you wouldn't be terrified about doing, and he said he was just really frightened. But his dog... Uh, he lifted his dog up on an ice float and then he got up with his dog and he got that first girl, but he couldn't get the second and they ran kind of down the bank of the river. The second little girl said she couldn't move, but he sent his dog in and told that little girl to grab a hold of the dog's collar and he kept the leash and he yanked them both in. And they're fine. That story... It's just, it feels so much more like the world that works for everyone than what's usually on the news, which tells us what's wrong with us, what's wrong with our neighbors, what's wrong with our communities, or how much money we're going to make if we just invest in, decide this, do that. 
I'm not saying we don't need that. We need a piece of that. It gives us balance, but we need a bigger idea of who we are and whose we are, of spirit walking as us through this world, inspiring us, encouraging us to be more than that small self working at home at the computer, reading things on TED Talks that make us feel good. I do that quite often myself. So Dr. McGilchrist said that we need to remember that our left brain is a serial processor. It does one item at a time and it's linear. It can't stop thinking. It can't stop thinking. Do you meditate? When I first started to meditate, I could not believe my mind and what it was thinking. The minute I'd sit down, It just was this crazy person that would say, oh gosh, you should go to see Jillian. She's at the Windspear tonight and she's just a fabulous woman, nice and slim and trim and she's going to tell you how to eat right and I should be doing that. Oh gosh, what shoes have I got on? Oh yeah, they're kind of uncomfortable. Why do I think I'm wearing it? I don't think I'm really, I don't really know what I'm going to say next. And the more I try to hang on to all that and shut it down, the worse it gets. The more it pops up and the more I feel like getting up and making myself a cup of coffee and tell myself, I can't meditate, it's too much. I don't want to keep that left brain working so powerfully in my life. It does not serve my highest good. This teaching is really all about putting the left and right together and putting the right in the place of the spiritual master. So the best way to really get this brain working collaboratively is to be in a community, to hear the story of another person's life and feel it in your body as your life too. To feel someone experiencing pain as they suffer something in their life and recognize that your own cells are starting to feel pain too and then to be taught that we can kind of move our thinking to the frontal, to the prefrontal lobe, where we can be just enough detached to have the big picture view. Just enough detached to maybe pull in that left brain enough to have a strategy that says, don't blow up and get mad and say something you'll regret. Take a breath. Find that place in you that has that thing that's annoying you. Bring forgiveness into that. The left brain hates all that namby-pamby stuff. But the right brain and the body feels it. And so if we can say that that is spirit, knowing itself, when I feel that, ah, when I look at the sunset and see all the beauty out there and say, how does all of that happen? When we go out at night and it's silent and the stars are everywhere and the sky is huge and we get that magnificent, oh, the mechanical left brain cannot give us that. If we give that energy too much over here, our music becomes a thumping rhythm because that's all the left brain can hear. It doesn't have the ability to hear the intricacies of classical music, the depth of the words and the poetry and the art and the literature, that's right brain. To feel that love coming through, 
a magnificent work of art. It's the right brain that can see that. It's the body that can feel that. The Buddha said, what have you gained? The Buddha was asked, what have you gained from meditation? The Buddha said, nothing at all. The person asking the question said then, what's the good of it? The Buddha said, let me tell you what I've lost through meditation. I have lost sickness, anger, depression, insecurity, the burden of old age, and the fear of death. That's the good of meditation, which leads to nirvana. Dr. Jill Bolte experienced nirvana, she said. She said, we can all experience nirvana, but it's in our right brain. It's shutting off that critical mind that thinks it knows it all, that is our, really our ego, that says, oh no, I, you know, I can control it. I can make it happen. I can set myself up for safety and success. It's all about process. It's all about strategy and it's all about control and it's all about being perfectly smart. The right brain says there's no such thing as perfect. Life is organic. It's evolving. It's never the same. Even the seasons don't show up exactly the same. There's a million little details that are different, like snow now. The MRI is teaching us what we need to know about life. It's teaching us that we need our right brain hemisphere and that we have the power to choose our thinking. And that when we choose the big picture, when we choose a world that works for everyone, not just me, not just the Western world, not just mine, it's the right brain that understands that we are one that we are spirit in human form. It's the right brain that says, I don't know how, but I know why. It's the left brain that gets confused, that the master wants it to have it all figured out or lie about it. If we want gratitude and forgiveness, music, poetry, intricate detail, if we want layers and depth and overview, if we want reasonable, reasonableness and awe and wonder and that great aha, we'll need to be humble. We'll need to remember that we don't know it all, including that detailed brain of ours on the left side, that we are learners, that we are open, that we can be awestruck at any moment, that we don't know how to heal ourselves instantaneously, but we do believe that we're open to the possibility. And that if we think big, we're probably much more likely to step into a bigger idea of who and whose we are. Every human being, every human being contains that great lineage from the very beginning when spirit became form. We carry that with us as the genius in ourselves as the genius in our literature, our poetry, our music, the recipes that have been handed down, the artwork, the weaving, the knitting, the crocheting, the textures and patterns. We carry all of that with us. That's ours. That's love handed to us. 
It doesn't look like a neat little package. It looks messy, but we know it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It, it's a wonder and an awe to all of that. If we go too far to the left side of our brain, we were, are going to create a world where we are losing beauty and wonder and awe and reasonableness. But we will say that we have absolutely perfect reason, logic, and we'll be able to rationalize it and the world will reflect it back to us. We are a part of something that has existed since and before the beginning of time. We're born with it. It will be here long after we die. And so my message this morning to you is, pick up the beauty of your life, the wonder of your lineage, all of those wonderful things that you've been given from your grandmother, your grandfather, your ancestors, all of that love that's in us that makes life fulfilling, meaningful, and worth living. Take a walk, meditate, connect those brains, See nature for the miracle that it is. Come and walk the labyrinth. Sit in class and hear the story of the people in that class and how those stories connect us. Find meaning in your own life through your story. Start to look for what the patterns are in your life, where the gifts have been in your life and where the love has been in your life. And tell that to your children and your grandchildren. Let's remember who we are. Let's remember that we are spirit knowing itself. Let's remember that the left brain is our servant and not the master. I'd like to end with a poem, and I'd like to invite you to close your eyes or just sit comfortably and be really present. Think of your right brain, that holistic and wonderful awestruck brain. And I'll read this to you. I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in the autumn, a cold breeze in the summer, snow in the winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. To the mind that is still, the whole universe surrenders. And now we'll count to 12, and we will just all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak any language. Let's just stop for a second, not move our arms too much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all just be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm the whales. The woman gathering salt would not hurt her hands. Those who prepare for green wars, wars with words or wars with fire, victories with no survivors, 
would put on clean clothes. They'd walk with their brothers and sisters in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it's about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves or of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth itself can teach us as when everything seems to be dead in the winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count to 12 and you will keep quiet and I will go. We are part of all that is. We are the mystery. We are the mastery of our thought, the master of our experience. And yet wrapped up with that is something more than we are. I feel that presence when I'm with you. I feel that power when we meditate, when we pray, and when we tell each other our stories. I know that there is one life, that we are one with it, that we have a power to create a world of love and joy, a world of peace, a world where there's enough for everyone and a world that works for us all. Let's claim that. And so it is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.